and welcome to the Psychomedia Podcast. I am Timothy Swan. And I am a small Diamante pig, and together we're going to discuss the funny side of psychology. Uh, yeah, this week uh, we are feeling a little hoarse. Well, no, we're actually just feeling um, some stuff. We're talking about touch and haptics. That's what touch is. Uh, we're talking about tickling uh, and various if other things. If you're haptic and you know it, clap your hands. It works on two levels. <laughs> exactly. It's like you'll get the feedback from clapping your hands. Um, <laughs> But if you're really haptophobic <laughs> and you try your best not to show it and stay away from all human then contact, please whatever you and do, you'll be don't fine. Your hands. <laughs> Actually, no. I mean, like, well, as we'll discover later, clapping your hands is fine. It's clapping anyone else's hands that will affect you if you're haptophobic. Um, yeah. I will happily. I was. Gonna, I was going to say I will happily touch myself anywhere. I didn't really realise <laughs> that that was. Yeah, um, it was a bit. It was it, that, oh that, my god, on the subject of... Were you going to talk about its use on the bugle? Yeah. Absolutely. Did you feel Did you feel that we've owned that now? That it's kind of our thing more than it's their thing? I, it was when a they, strange Because I'm pretty sure they did it first, didn't they? I don't... Well, maybe... I, so when I went looking for porn music, uh, well, my, you, I, I was unaware that they might have used it before. But uh, so when the, when it occurred recently, I felt like we got there first, and I had this strange mix of they owe us royalties, and <laughs> yeah, no, no, no one owes Ron Jeremy any royalties. No. But then that was combined with deep-seated pride that our idols were using something that we had also used. Yeah, yeah. I mean, never meet your heroes, <laughs> and certainly especially when about, you know. Well, I was going to say, especially when they're on Jeremy, think about alcohol gel, you know, after you've shook their hand. Um, anyway, anyway. Um, just as we have uh, the Bugle as our idols, our listeners have us as their idols. Do you have any feedback this week, Ben? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, it was that one. Oh, yeah, on my soundboard, that points out that it's got a honk or it's not got a honk. And mine too, but I don't tend to read that far into the labelling before I get yeah. there. Anyway, yes, I have an feedback this week um, from a Peter Hammerson on Twitter, uh, who reports that I am controlling his mouth yawns, uh, for which I can only apologise, but would also like to add, Mwaha, ha 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 ha, I'll show them, I'll show them all, Mwaha, ha. Oh, I was just going to add. <sighs> <laughs> was that was that you trying to do a yawn noise? Like, how would you do a fake yawn? I was like, <sighs> I would, okay, okay, just a. <gasps> so what we've seen here is that Ben is not only better at impressions of voices, but at impressions of other noises. <laughs> Let's try and not do a when Harry met Sally scene. Um, uh, oh, I, do you have any feedback? I also have feedback from someone called Peter. Uh, we were talking before the show that it seems like Peter might be the modal name for our listeners. Because I'm know, pretty sure this is the fourth separate Peter that I can have confirmed listens to the show. The problem is, uh, you know, I don't think we can maintain this level. Like, sure, we've got a lot now, but I'm pretty certain that they're going to peter out fairly shortly. Oh, I knew it was going somewhere. <laughs> Because you adopt a certain, there's a pre, there's a pre pun tone 
Oh yeah, it's it's intentional. It's, yeah, I know. Uh, it's it's kind of like when when snakes fixate rabbits it with like a, a gaze just before they strike. It's like that. It's like, like it's a it's a I know that I'm going to hold you in place. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to make you start you on your freezing reaction, and yeah. then I'm going to hit you with it. Yeah. Um. So yeah. Um. I have been on a lot of uh, training for work of various sorts. Um over the last week and uh, one of them on the first day our icebreaker was incredibly in-depth and it was like who are you where do you work how do you feel today how do you feel every day uh what's one thing you do outside work what's one thing that makes you smile um which was stupid uh, obviously to do that much icebreaking um but i did That's say obviously nice yeah exactly um contributing substantially to like glacial degradation um <laughs> and the destruction of the polar bear habitat. Um, I, uh, I obviously said thing that I did in outside work was a podcast of the funny side of psychology. And uh, a couple of people asked me about it, but one of the people actually asked me about it and followed it up and listened to it. And he fed back that he enjoyed the show, as did his son, though his daughter, who I've written down possibly 10, I think he said she was 10 years old. I, I hope I'm not made that up. Asked, <laughs> why is this on the radio? Uh, <laughs> we're on the radio, Tim. <laughs> a 10-year-old well, yeah. girl thinks we're on the radio. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, it's only children and old people who think we're on the radio. <laughs> yep. I have to try and explain. No, we don't broadcast live. Uh, uh, no, no, you can't tune in. It's like, uh, it's, uh, yeah. But I suppose that's what I get for saying internet radio show instead of podcast. And I know they're different, but explaining a podcast means you have to explain a pod and a cast. Um, but yeah, so like we got positive feedback there. And, you know, just slowly, slowly through training events, I'll get all of my colleagues in, <laughs> in Devon. Everyone in the world. Well, obviously, if they change jobs to different trusts, they spread it around trusts, at least everyone working in mental health in the UK. I'm sure that won't contribute significantly in the wrong direction. <laughs> yeah. Uh, cool. So that, that's it for feedback from me. Uh, did you, have you, has anything been occupying the majority of your brain this week? Um, well, I've written down four things. Um, uh, so I guess actually that that is a contradiction in terms because any one of uh, one of them must have been occupying the majority of your brain. Well, or collectively, it... they formed a grand coalition. That was the only yeah. way that they could maintain a stable government. <laughs> <laughs> right. What, what were these four things? Uh, so the first one is that I'm still awful at 10 pin bowling. It turns out. OK. Uh, I could have thunk it. Yeah, I know. Um, well, not enough thunking, I think, was the problem. Uh, yes. Uh, that I should have used a manatee. That's an old, subsequently ended webcomic joke. Okay. I mean, I wish I could have used a manatee. <laughs> um, I guess with a manatee, like, it's, it's risk-reward. Because if you can get the manatee to the skittles, then you're probably going to strike. Get a strike. But you're not going to get a manatee. You're going to get, like, a triple strike. <laughs> the problem is the manatee is quite a heavy and frictionful animal. And is... Probably okay. going to stop about halfway down. Are you better throwing a harp seal? <laughs> like, what you're trying to do is you're trying to find the marine mammal that is the, like, slickest and the easiest to hurl. <laughs> Probably, yeah. Well, because you either want to go for one that is largely frictionless, like a, a well-oiled penguin, or one that is as near as possible to spherical. Okay. It, the problem with the harp seal is they taper. So That's if it gets, true. If, if I, it I was thinking a bit like... Then it's gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna turn and head, it and you'll be right in the gully. Then you got a harp seal in the gully. You've got 
serious <laughs> issues. If that gets like caught up in the ball mechanism at the other end, then you're, it's going to be very unpleasant when the r- remains of the harp seal gets spat out of the <laughs> thing that pushes the balls out. Well, that's just like mind games, isn't it, really? <laughs> uh, have, have you what, heard? With the harp seal. <laughs> other with harp seals other... waiting on the ball rack. Like, no, only I have a harp seal. Only I have a harp seal. Everyone else has balls. I mean, obviously, you have to have balls to go and try and play bowling with her. Anyway, um, have you heard the baby harp seal song? Uh, I, I think I may have. Done. It's the one where there is a photographer in a very, very bright coloured coat. Yep. I just fun. figured that I should share that with the listeners, you know, in the show notes. Well, I'll, yeah, we'll put that in the show notes. Uh, yeah. So um, context to whatever it was that we were just talking <laughs> about. You see, this is why people like the waffle section, because stuff like that happens. Um, so, yeah. my God. I, I've got a move, a what move that can can belabouredly segue on from from what we've been talking okay, about. Okay, go for it. So uh, something that's been occupying at least a significant proportion of my brain this week was uh, a news article I read about a archaeological an archaeological dig uh, in Chile, where they have uh, uncovered a prehistoric whale graveyard, wow. and it's this like it's one of the highest densities of uh, marine fossils from that era that's ever been discovered and they think it's because uh, an algae bloom caused like mass death in the larger marine mammals uh, animals and then they all kind of washed up on the same area and uh, so it's being it's being excavated and you can see all these amazing like 3D models of all the whales and stuff but they point out that there are a couple of very peculiar species that they've found one of which is a walrus whale Say what? Which is, is literally a dolphin with the face of a walrus. Except, <laughs> except that the males have one very short tusk about six inches long and one very long tusk, like three feet long. That, is that, like that's, they took a walrus and they made it less practical. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> um, they thought that maybe this short tusk was the practical tusk and the long tusk might have been like a narwhal tusk as in a sensory organ. Oh, uh, I did not know the narwhal tusk was a sensory organ. Yeah, it is. It's like electrosensitive. Oh, right. Not just for poking things then. Yeah. Um, I assumed then, it was like a secondary sexual characteristic slash a stabby thing. Um, I mean, I, I think it probably could be used for that as well. But uh, hang on, let me look. Okay, well, I'll quickly add that Line of Duty on the BBC awesome cop show. Just amazing. Series one was great, series two is great. Um, Back to the whales, though. Back to I the whales. What I looking for. This is on the BBC News article uh, from Nicholas Pineson, a paleontologist with the Smithsonian. Uh, he is commenting on the strange uh, species that they found and says, We found extinct creatures such as walrus whales, dolphins that evolved a walrus-like face, and then there were these bizarre aquatic sloths. And then they don't pursue that thing. Like, you don't just drop the phrase bizarre aquatic sloths. As, oppo- then... as opposed to normal looking aquatic sloths. Well, yeah, but like uh, my, my office mate Felix raised a very good point about this. Are Hi, these Felix. like under, underwater sloths, like truly aquatic sloths? Are they amphibious sloths or are they just sloths that have fallen into the sea? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, oh, that is pretty funny. Um, So I did a psychopath test on uh, a patient. Um, Did they win? 
yes. Um, Good. For a given context of winning. Yeah, no, I helped do, like, I contributed to an MDT doing a PCLR. I never thought I would do cool stuff like this. It's so cool. Um, mm -hmm. I just wanted to say, you know, doing real psychology that people have heard of in the popular culture. That's pretty cool. Um, thinking of psychology people haven't heard of in the popular culture, also as part of my training today, I did something called a button sculpt. Um which is where you model a social network using a collection of assorted buttons. Um, and you have to choose buttons that match like personality characteristics and stuff. It's really fun and incredibly like, because you've got to pick like emotional stuff. It's for, like quite an emotional thing and it's used in family therapy. But, you know, if you've ever got a box of buttons and you want to pass the time psychologically, try and think of like a time in your life and build your social network and think about how close people are or how distant uh, and how you'd represent their personalities. It's fun. Vibe buttons. Cool. Cool. That, that, that does sound fun. It, it's a very cutesy kind of thing for something that's yeah, yeah. like, and then my mother left me. Oh. <laughs> Modelled by hurling a button across the room angrily. I did hurl a button across the room at one point. It was very <laughs> cathartic. I feel like... Was it intentional? Uh, yes. Ah. Yes. Awesome. I've been working <laughs> through my problems using buttons. <laughs> I may have abused this training as a sort of pseudo-therapy. <laughs> Not to mention the button. Well, yes, it may have cool. hit someone. <laughs> I didn't mean to, but it did. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> not, not. Dyspraxic kung fu skills. Not hard. Head again. Not hard. <laughs> the table absorbed most of the energy and then it bounced into the person. <laughs> <laughs> right. Excellent. Cool. Okay, have you well, done anything else this week? Well, I mean, we played a bit more Civ, which yeah, was Yeah, we did. Fun. I don't, I feel like it was very much the middle episode. Yeah, yeah, it was the dark middle episode. Oh, I, Sweden! I got their hand cut off. Yeah, Tim tried to invade Sweden and did not have the same level of success that we had against wiping out the Japanese. Uh, Which is weird, because you wouldn't think it would have gone that way. Yeah, I think it's just because Sweden had been left unmolested for a long time. But there was an interesting thing that happened. Uh, so we, me and Tim had killed Japan. Uh, Felix, our comrade, had killed, uh, had wiped out Austria in this session. So that left only the three of us and one AI I'd just player. Just like to point out, it was Morocco. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. Austria. It's because it's because Austria begins with an A, and the leader of Morocco's name also begins with an A. Okay. Okay. Um, Sorry, I shouldn't. But anyway, that means that we are now left with three of us and one AI player and the sudden realisation that if we killed the last remaining AI, we'd be forced to fight each other. That, thus, I think that Sweden may, may live to fight another day. Yeah, I, I may be not going to want to hit it too hard because I know that uh, although score-wise I look good, that's because I'm a generalist. Right. I'm yeah, a little that. bit good at everything. <laughs> A consequently a little bit bad at everything. Yeah, course. I own the jack anyway, trades. Um, yes. Yeah. We should uh, do some psychology. Yeah, if only there was a belaboured segue from civilization. I can't, I can't see it. No. But can you feel it? <laughs> coming in the air tonight. Oh, Lord. Is it coming? I thought it was calling. I thought it was coming. Anyway... <laughs> yeah oh, oh it's me isn't it right sure. okay so uh yeah psychology right as i'm sure we've mentioned previously um basically the, uh, and has probably become abundantly apparent from what 
all that 15 minutes that you just heard. This show was originally conceived as a means of basically allowing Tim and me to continue to have the kind of discussions that we used to have when we were walking to and from lectures at university. Um, although over time, I feel like the show has it's kind of morphed into a, a different sort of beast. But every now and then, it is nice when we happen to revisit one of the topics that used to occupy our morning walks through Oxford, because it reminds us of simpler times, you know, time before soundboards or MP3 formats, when I sang significantly less and Tim got run over, nearly got run over significantly more. Uh, those those traffic lights have a mind of their own, Ben. You know it's true. They do. They're the only sentient traffic lights in the world and they hate me. Yeah. It was it was a better time, particularly as it was a time when neither of us had ever heard. I was going to say I'd never heard what is love. Uh, <laughs> I never had any personal responsibilities yeah, in my life. Not everything was better back then. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, in honour of those halcyon days, this week I'm going to cover a study I distinctly recall from our time as undergrads. Uh, and it's a study that has stuck with me over the years and is one of the kind of studies that I will occasionally trot out uh, to non-psychologists as a means of conveying to them how awesome uh, this uh, subject truly is. Um, for the simple reason that it explains why schizophrenics can tickle themselves. Uh, so everyone knows that you can't tickle yourself, and obviously, unless you're schizophrenic, spoilers. Um, this makes it tickling quite an interesting psychological phenomenon and has actually made it quite a useful tool for psychologists who are investigating how the interaction between our motor and sensory processes we seem to have this embedded sense of when physical sensations result from our own actions even though there's nothing in the like pure tactile sense data that would convey that that um, sensation derives from our own kind of hand motions or behavior or whatever. Um, I, in terms of how this is thought to work, one suggestion is that the brain basically monitors the motor signals that it's sending out to the body and then it sends that information across to the uh, haptic system, uh, the somatosensory cortex, and allows. And, and that allows this information to basically predict the likely tactile sensations we're going to experience. And if there is a kind of confluence between those things, then we experience the, the touch or the sensation in a very different way. Um, this is kind of similar to the mechanisms that our visual system uses that uh, allows us to maintain focus on a particular point in space while we move, like if we move our head around, our brains are keeping track of the motor commands that are moving our head and then they use that information to produce like compensatory mo movements in our eye muscles. It's a similar sure. system. And actually, there's a little experiment that you can do on yourself to demonstrate this effect. You have to be a little bit careful with this because uh, it involves poking yourself in the eye. Um, yeah. But be very careful. The first thing to do is to close one eye and then press very gently on the upper eyelid uh, of the other open eye. And it, do this very carefully and don't do it too much or you'll hurt yourself. And Psychomedia bears absolutely no responsibility for ocular damage sustained during the podcast. Um, 
But assuming that you manage to avoid turning yourself into a permanent pirate, when you press on your eyelid, it should look as though the whole world is moving. Like your entire field of vision should kind of wiggle when you poke it. Uh, Maybe I'm not poking it hard enough. I'm a bit. I'm aware that I haven't cut my nails recently. Oh, here's a finger with a without a nail. So I've got a finger on my. It's my open eye on the top of the eyelid. Yeah, and you just this makes my vision go blurry. It doesn't make anything move. Okay, it kind of changes the focus. It can work a bit better if you if you poke on the like, uh, hold your finger to the side of your eye, where basically where the two eyelids meet on the outside, and then kind of. Where the two eyelids meet on the outside. Yeah, so just like to the right-hand side of your right eye. So you're not actually touching your eyeball, but you're like right on the edge. And you poke it. Anyway, um, if you... It wasn't really that, working for me, but... The, the idea is that you are you are pushing your eyeball slightly. And okay, yep. what should happen, unless your tip... It's working for me right now. Um, is that because you, an external force, is moving your eyeball... Uh, your brain is not able to compensate for that motion so it feels like your entire visual your entire field of vision is moving um this is a very different visual sensation obviously to when you move your eyeball using your ocular muscles you know like if you're tracking an object like a passing pigeon or a paper airplane or a small diamante pig and for the this is because of that aforementioned theory your eye movements are self-generated. So there are motor signals from your own brain that are being sent there to produce them. And those motor signals are passed on to the visual system and then compensated for. And that allows you to keep your visual field stable. On the other Which hand, is amazingly clever. It really is. And when your eyeball is moved by some external force, like poking your eye, the muscles around it, they don't have any kind of like proprioceptive feedback mechanism. They aren't they, they can't sense when the eyeball is being moved. So your visual system is fooled into thinking that the whole world is shifting, basically. Um, I Just at this point, I would like to point out you should not Google finger in eye. Cause that's, oh, um, no. Pretty, like I can even I, I'm picturing it right now anyway. Pretty, pretty messed up stuff on that. Anyway, uh, how does this all relate to tickling? Well, it's actually almost exactly the same principle. When you try and tickle your own feet, for example, your brain knows to expect the physical sensation because it just told your fingers to make tickling motions. Um, on the other hand, when someone else tickles your feet, your brain has no idea what's going on and in psychological terms, freaks the Freud out, uh, or to put it in another slightly more up-to-date way, loses its collective stapel. Hey! Yeah, getting getting that in there. So, um, did, you tr- did you try and tickle yourself in preparing for this uh, episode, Ben? I'm... I'm doing it right now and just just not okay do you know what i tried to do uh in preparation for this episode i i reckoned if i moved quickly and randomly enough i'd be able to surprise myself that and is... unfortunately did you succeed no i thought the dyspraxia might give me just the chance of having a yeah. poor prediction system that it might work i don't know what the prediction is for dyspraxia and we're going to talk about other stuff later mm. um but no, I couldn't. I couldn't like be like ninja enough to tickle myself before my brain realised what I was doing. Even your unconscious brain was still aware of what was going on, even if your conscious brain wasn't. Entirely. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Well, anyway, this this idea of like some internal monitor predictive monitoring process uh, was dubbed the forward model by uh, Wolpert in 1997. 
Um, basically, the idea is that if the received signal from the sense organ in question, like your haptic senses and your feet, for example, if that matches the predicted signal from the internal monitoring thing, then the sensation is ascribed to your own actions. On the other hand, if there's like a signal mismatch, the discrepancy is registered and it produces an entirely different subjective experience, be it, you know, the sensation of ticklishness or the feeling that the whole world is wobbling around you if you're poking your eye. So, that, you know, fair enough. That's a perfectly reasonable model. The question is, how does all of this relate to schizophrenia? Well, there are two key symptoms often associated, two of the many symptoms often associated with schizophrenia are auditory hallucinations, that's probably most famous, a symptom of schizophrenia, and, yeah. and they often manifest as, you know, spoken voices. And then there's also something called passivity phenomena. And passivity phenomena are things like feeling that you're not in control of your own physical actions, like you, maybe your limbs are being controlled by some external force. Now, uh, uh, researcher Chris Frith and colleagues have proposed that these symptoms might result from a failure of the forward model. Um, basically, the idea is if there is a failure of this internal monitoring process, then you, you might perform an action, but that action won't subsequently be matched up with the kind of predicted physical sensations that would result from it. So you your brain is encouraged to attribute those sensations to an external source rather than to the internal generation of those uh, actions. Um, this works quite intuitively for the passivity phenomena. If your brain doesn't expect the physical sensation that would occur when you pick up a pen or a small diamante pig, then experiencing those sensations could very well lead to a feeling that your limbs are moving out of your control. With auditory hallucinations, it gets a little bit more complex, but it's it's kind of awesome um, in a psychological sort of way um yeah no i think this is a really interesting model so most of us it most if not all of us uh, experience some kind of internal monologue that is we tend to think in words for a greater part of the time mm -hmm. um in auditory hallucinations the idea is that the internal monitoring component of the forward model fails to register the the internal monologue basically it fails to to alert the body to the fact that the internal monologue is being self-generated. So there's a disconnect between the words that we are generating in our heads and then our subsequent kind of quasi-auditory experience of them. This is pretty difficult to get your head around, given that the majority of us, for the majority of us, generating and hearing our thoughts are indistinguishable processes. But Frith and colleagues argue that this is exactly the same kind of physiological experience as the disconnect between self-generated physical motion and physical motion that someone else, you know, is generating. You know, just think of the difference between touching yourself and being touched by someone else. Although, haptically speaking, those sensations could be identical yeah. Psychologically speaking, the two are very different. And in fact, the latter can be quite jarring and even uncomfortable if you're not expecting it. Um, case yeah. in point, I'm sure Tim will uh, agree with that point. You know, some for some people. Uh, yeah, I don't feel weird when my hand is on my leg. 
where yeah. or even on my arm or my shoulder whereas if it's someone else's a lot of the time i find that incredibly aversive yeah um so and it's you, because the prediction, like I am very sensitive anyway, but the prediction model is attenuating that sensory feedback. Can I just say something about auditory uh, hallucinations? That uh, maybe it will sure. make. I mean, uh, if if I'm, I'm sure not many people will know the types of auditory hallucinations that exist. Obviously, a really important one is command hallucinations. You hear a voice telling you to do something. But other ones are commentary hallucinations. You hear a voice telling you what you're doing. Um, or you have, I guess, voices that are just emotional in content, often really negative, telling you, oh, you're terrible. But also there's grandiose, like voices that feed into grandiose delusions, telling you that you're amazing. And if you imagine, you, you, we have all of these thoughts. We have thoughts about what you're doing right now and you're keeping on track, what you should be doing or what you want to do. Sometimes those thoughts are quite automatic and negative. Like, you know, you're walking over a bridge on your phone. You think, oh, I should throw my phone in the river. And that's quite a common one is I should, you know, jump off that or I should throw that in there is quite a common negative automatic thought. Um, not, you know, uh, or, you know, I'm rubbish or I'm great. Um, and if you're suddenly like, you know, all of those thoughts go on to all of us all the time, but obviously we don't really hear them as such. Occasionally we do hear them in our own voice and ascribe to ourselves. If suddenly those are attributed externally, you can hear how those become from a, oh, I should do this to do this from a voice coming from the outside if you can't follow the prediction model properly yeah and yeah i mean i just thought that would be a bit kind of yeah, no, that's, try that's, and get a bit more sense into it because it is harder to understand and i think doesn't frith's model try and explain even more symptoms of schizophrenia i can't remember what others were quite possibly unfortunately i, I didn't go into that in the paper that i was reading oh, well yeah you're focusing on the tick link which is probably the right thing to focus on <laughs> but anyway yeah so that that same sensation of kind of discordance that you get with tickling or poking yourself in the eye the idea basically is to apply that to your eternal monologue um yeah and it doesn't it it makes a lot of semi-intuitive sense um and it's it's kind of a nice theory uh, but of course what is a theory without empirical data it is in the arse end of nowhere, just around the corner from pointless and a short walk from wasting everyone's time. Or, as it's more commonly known, philosophy. <laughs> oh, zing. Uh, thankfully, though, the authors of this particular paper, uh, Sarah Jane Blakemore, brilliant name, particularly given that Jane is spelled with a Y, uh, Daniel Wolpert and Chris Frith, they are not philosophers. So they did some cool experiments. Uh, first off, they wanted to test the limits of the internal monitoring process in uh, neurotypicals, um, so non-schizophrenic. Um, is neurotypical accepted language these days? I like, don't know. I mean, like, neurotypical is, like, debatable in the use in autism, but I don't know if we ever use it to describe people who are not... So what I is the... Non, non-psychotic? What, I mean, that's very still... generally accepted term, like, within your field? I mean... I guess we would you probably then be referring like to what someone else's diagnosis, what like specifically in our service, we're about to split most of our mental health services into a psychosis service and a non-psychosis service. Okay. So you'd say a non-psychosis population. But I don't know about that because that seems to be defining it quite by the condition. Whereas obviously in my setting, it would be, well, okay, that person, you know, has schizophrenia, they have psychosis, that person has personality disorder. Well, Those maybe, tend to be the major diagnoses yeah. that I deal with. Okay, um, I'm going to coin a brand new phrase. I'm going to call them psychotypicals because that I feel like that conveys the point I'm trying to make. 
Okay, yeah, because that can still include well. like people with anxiety and depression. Yeah. Um, okay. You know, and you know, schizophrenia is about one percent of the population, so it's not that pejorative to say typical. Um, I, I I don't know. It's not like my field, unfortunately, to know what kind of terminology and like rights groups would say. But psychotypical, give it a try. It might be out yeah. there. Somewhere. Yeah. Well, anyway, I'm going to run with that for now. But if anyone majorly objects to it, do let us know. Well, I, I'm um, going to Google that. <laughs> OK, maybe we just need to come up with an entirely arbitrary term. Like, I don't know. Pigeon. Uh, OK. Uh, Collins English Dictionary describes psychotypical, a non-autistic person who is a dishonest, mean sometimes, a bully who is disrespectful. What? <laughs> what? Yeah. Okay, that's weird. Okay, we'll stop using that then. Anyway, some <laughs> some non-schizophrenic, non-anything else people, uh, they they wanted to test, you know, the the limits of the internal monitor. Um, this is based on the idea that in order for the internal monitor to kind of do its job, um, and to synchronize the incoming and the predicted signals, there needs to be a very high level of temporal accuracy. Basically, it, you know, for example, in the case of touching your feet, the touch signals from your feet need to arrive at exactly the same time, exactly the time that they are predicted to arrive, obviously taking into account the not insignificant travel time of a neural impulse from your foot to your brain. Uh, so you need that in order to, for the sensation to be perceived as self-generated. So basically to test this idea, they just had participants uh, move a small a small piece of soft foam across their hand using a robotic arm and basically this allowed them to vary the time delay between the subject generating the motion and it actually arriving at their hand so they um, what they found was that the greater the latency between the input and the output the higher the participants ratings of ticklishness of the sensation so yeah if you, if the moment you introduce a delay into the intended motion and the resultant physical sensation, that is when you get this disconnect and basically an, an attribution of an external source for the, for the sensation. So that's kind of point one in uh, kind of confirming the forward model. And in their second study, they just repeated the same, basically the same thing in an MRI scanner, although I don't think they were using a robot arm this time. I think they just had participants either move a foam pad around on their own hand or have the experimenter move the foam pad around. And here they found that they found there was higher activation in secondary somatosensory cortex and the anterior cingulate gyrus for externally generated sensations compared to self-generated ones. So activity in those areas higher for external stimuli and also though they found that in the right anterior area of the cerebellum there was selective deactivation for self-generated motion if that motion resulted in a tactile sensation so basically if you, you if you're just sort of waving your hand back and forth through the air there would be uh activation in this area of the cerebellum however if you were touching one hand with the other hand then there would be this selective deactivation of that anterior area of the cerebellum so they suggest that this particular location in the brain might be an excellent candidate for the internal monitoring process 
as it shows this selective patterns of activation for motions that necessitate this matching of outgoing and incoming signals. Um, so that those were their kind of study one and study two. Finally, and most awesomely, I think, they compared responses to self and other generated tactile sensations in 15 patients who were diagnosed with schizophrenia and who experienced auditory hallucinations or, and or passivity phenomena. 23 participants diagnosed with schizophrenia who didn't experience hallucin auditory hallucinations or passivity phenomena, and then 15 age max controls. And the results were exactly as predicted by the forward model. Only the patients with auditory hallucinations or passivity phenomena showed no difference in ticklishness ratings for self or other generated sensations. Patients without those symptoms or controls behaved exactly the same in that they rated the external simile as way more ticklish. Um, which is kind of awesome evidence for what is already a quite an awesome theory about how our somatosensory and motory systems kind of smoosh together in a highly groovy manner and also allows you to startle your friends and amaze your enemies with the phrase schizophrenics can tickle themselves yeah so yeah that's pretty awesome i've said awesome a lot and i'm going to carry on saying it but awesome. maybe later probably um so shall, shall i talk about more self-tickling I think so. I mean, it's, a, it's you know, a rich vein of psychology that needs to be mined. I would say people can't get enough of it, but obviously it doesn't really derive any, like, feelings. So if you are still <laughs> trying, it's that kind of, it's, it's, it's the forbidden love. You should love. probably stop. You'll, you'll get a rash. Well, you'll get bored, I would imagine. So, yeah. <laughs> so now, in another episode of The Psychology of Tim's Fetishes. Wait, <laughs> let's not. Um, what I'm talking about here is uh, not tickling. Uh uh, it's swapping bodies. <coughs> Not literally our neuroscience and cybernetics hasn't got there yet, but using illusions. So we know from what Ben's told us that you can't tickle yourself, but what if you aren't really you? I mean, that's not meant as a philosophical question to give you that creeping sense of self-doubt that I may have spoken about on the podcast before. You know, I try, try, try saying to yourself in your head, I am your name. And uh, see if you feel really weird. Uh, and uh, if you yeah, want to try that, you know, if you try and give yourself an out-of-body experience, then try and tickle yourself. Well, let's find out if that will work <laughs> using science. Uh, in general terms, if your movement matches your brain's prediction of the movement, or pretty much does, turns down the metaphorical volume on the sensory feedback from that. Uh, so uh, Ben gave a couple of examples. Uh, your own clapping, it's been found, sounds quieter. And yes, you can't tickle yourself, which is really annoying if you really enjoy annoying yourself. Although, I suppose not succeeding in tickling yourself would equally count as annoying yourself. You know, you win either way. Uh, obviously, I am not a fan of tickling. I'm not tremendously put out by the fact I can't tickle myself. Uh, there's obviously, as always, uh, an evolutionary explanation for this. That essentially, when you're making an important movement... Uh, actually, very sensitive sensory feedback is going to be unhelpful and distracting. They say, you know, like if you're trying to hit a jaguar with a spear, noticing a fly landing on your arm and attending to that when you're trying to do the stabby motion is going to cause you problems in survival. Um, so, yeah, uh, there's in this uh, this paper that I, I um, am kind of doing, who's uh, Van Dorn et al. Um, some incredibly boring things about how the brain doesn't use commands. It uses predictions and then reflexes to achieve the same goal, which is somehow more energy efficient than motor commands. 
I really don't care. And <laughs> if it was, you know, if it was not going to become relevant to the study, I would completely just skip over it. I am what's wrong with science journalism. Unfortunately, <laughs> it's the basis of the study, so I can't skip over it as others happily do. Basically, what it means that if you um, if you fed back all prediction errors all at once, you'd be unable to move. And so you just have to ignore what your senses say about whether your prediction worked or not uh, in order to successfully achieve a movement. And you worry about it after you've done the movement, I think. Mm. Uh, okay. So, theoretically, there's kind of two theoretical choices, which is kind of the Blackmore model. Prediction is compared to reality, and thus the senses are turned down, or the senses are turned down because of prediction in, uh, of itself. So in the first case, Van Dorn et al. say, and I suppose I'd better trust them, we've gone this far, um, the context is important. You could create a surprising situation that would mess it up, you know, depending on who's touched, how they're touched, and where it's delivered. So if you use the rubber hand illusion and then tickle the rubber hand, in the first model, the weird situation will mean you won't be able to predict properly, so you will be able to self-tickle. And in the second, the fact that you're moving at all will turn down sensory feedback and you won't. Hang on, uh, you should probably clarify what the rubber hand illusion is. Uh, yeah, we couldn't remember whether we've talked about it on the podcast before. Basically, it uses visual trickery to make it seem like a rubber hand is actually your hand uh, using smoke and mirrors and stuff. It's a bit like the phantom limb stuff, but for people who don't have any amputations. Um, and so you get this kind of sense of ownership of a hand that isn't yours. And so it isn't giving you any somatosensory feedback. And yet it still feels like it's yours and feels like it's being touched. I feel like we have discussed it before because I distinctly remember saying before what I'm about to say, which is that it's, it's very easy to perform this illusion yourself. All you need is a rubber hand and a willing volunteer to sit under a table that you are sitting at. You hold your arm under a table. You then put like cover your arm with a cloth, put a rubber hand under the cloth, kind of sitting on the table so you can see it in exactly the same position that your hand is under the table and then you have your willing volunteer or volunteers stroke both your hand under the table and the rubber hand on top of the table in exactly the same way at exactly the same time a whole bunch and eventually hopefully you will you will develop a sense that the rubber hand is in fact yours because of the match up between you know your visual cues and the haptic sensation of being stroked yeah. Well, the exciting thing is that this study is going to tell us that you don't actually really even need a rubber hand. Wow. Uh, and yeah, this is going to be a really cool experiment to prove one of the most boring theories I have ever read. Um, <laughs> so they set up a tickling machine, as in the original experiment. That it could be operated from one end by the participant or from the other by the experimenter. And there was also a camera helmet and goggles that could be worn by either the participant or the experimenter who was sat at a table looking at each other. So there were conditions of whether the tickle was externally or self-generated, depending on who was pushing the tickling machine, uh, whether the participant viewed their own or the experimenter's perspective, because the goggles would show a video feed either from the camera on their head or the camera from on the experimenter's head, uh, whether their limb was uh, tickled, or a baseball bat they held in the place of their limb, or nothing. And then also whether the illusion was synchronous or asynchronous. So synchronous, obviously, it's in synchrony, so the rubber handled illusion is going to happen because it's based on that rhythm. But asynchronous is going to lead to those prediction errors that led to the self-tickling. 
So a lot of different conditions. Anyway, it's fine. They are, they're going to find some quite clear effects. So they tested tickliness, which is how tickly, you know, the tickling felt, and also the strength of the body transfer illusion. Because actually, obviously, they were transferring really the whole body by changing the perspective. Uh, so I'll put some photos in the show notes of the setup and the apparatus, because that's a bit easier. Um, so the illusion, obviously, of body swapping would happen uh, when they were seeing the experimenter's perspective. Uh, and it would match with their hand moving or being touched. So in the results, there were main effects on tickliness of movement type. Externally generated tickles were rated more tickly than self-generated with a large reported effect size. Um, and this means that self-tickling is still impossible when there's an artificially imposed delay, when it's seen through another person's eyes, and when the limb actually uh, visibly involved is absent or a baseball bat. <laughs> so in terms of the illusion happening there were main effects of the perspective obviously way higher when from the experimental perspective and type of limb way higher when the visible limb was an actual hand although i think still significant when it was you know replaced with a baseball bat the baseball bat <laughs> still got incorporated as a rubber hand a fake limb and synchrony and delay didn't seem to significantly affect the strength of the illusion perhaps because having this video screen was so immersive that even a lack of rhythm uh, yeah. achieve that but that was even when like included when a hand like they said hands wouldn't necessarily be gender matched the experimenters weren't gender matched <laughs> to the participants and it would still it does work. seem like they like, they just they wanted to replicate the tickling experiment but they just wanted they, they couldn't be asked to actually put in all the effort to make it perfectly matched so they generated and then proved a theory that allowed them to just do it in a really <laughs> half-assed manner you know oh we couldn't get a rubber hand i've got this bat would that do <laughs> but i think the video headsets like proves that that's not you know maybe they had the video headsets already from some weird game um so uh essentially what this shows is the strength of the tickle effect even when things are super weird you know you're looking through someone else's eyes while it feels like a baseball bat is trying to tickle you and it's if it's you know really you who is the baseball bat or so it seems it won't feel like tickling and so, they say, the tickle effect can't be down to prediction error because it would be impossible to predict properly in these situations, but instead due to a general attenuation, a, a general attenuation even, of <laughs> sensory gating. And so they believe that some of the discrepancies between them and the Blackmore findings are differences in the way they created asynchrony between the senses. Because in the Blackmore study, the direction between the kinesthetic movement and the touch movement were out of orientation or timing whereas in this the asynchrony was between vision and touch right um so they reckon that that's probably why it was that the blackmore one had some results where it kind of worked so their conclusion is we asked can you tickle yourself if you swap bodies with someone else the short answer is no the longer answer is what i've just told you the actual long answer is super 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 boring I guess the conclusion is significant somehow that basically in terms of sensory feedback, your self-image doesn't make a difference. It is just in general, moving reduces sensation. But, you know, still cool, cool looking experiment, at least. And you've <laughs> really... it gives you a baseball bat arm. Yeah, you, you know, most and you I've really can't this. tickle yourself. Um, oh, no, it was I was trying to think of what uh, Barrett in Final Fantasy VII got, but he didn't get, like, because everyone had their, like, ridiculous weapon, but I think his is just, like, a boxing glove that goes over the gun. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is hilarious. It's kind of a, an, a, a much less effective Ash from the Evil Dead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. I, I mean, like, do you, uh, Minigun probably does trump um, Chainsaw. 
I, uh, it depends on the range. I bet there's fan art of Ash and Barrett together. <laughs> of just like all of the like arm arm Limb replacement guns. guys. Um, yeah, I but, spent and, a lot of time uh, last couple of weeks converting a bunch of space marines to have minigun arms. Okay, um, Terminators. No, just just bog standard. Like I making them all like bionic and such. And this set of bionic arms that I got came with like uh, minigun arms. And I was like, well, okay. why not? Do those count as assault cannons? They'll they'll probably just be bolters, to be honest. Okay, so looks cool, but not functional in the game. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> I've got to project that I don't know about this stuff instead of essentially knowing all of the rules to the fourth edition by heart. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, right. I didn't mean to learn them. It's just I have a nearly identical memory. <laughs> That's my excuse for a lot of geeky stuff. It really is, isn't it? Anyway, well, there's nothing wrong with that. It just means that you know, eventually it raises the likelihood that eventually you'll decide to start collecting again. No, and I will never, everyone I will never will be... collect again. <laughs> right. For years, Ben. Yeah, so was I. <laughs> <laughs> More psychology. So, I have uh, elusively called, titled this study Bumps and Holes, and it's great. <laughs> slightly less actually exciting than that makes it out to be. It's still kind of interesting. So, um, having spent all this time researching cool studies relating to touch, it occurred to me that I actually don't really know how touch works as a sense. I mean, I've got a pretty good idea of how vision and hearing work as a result of perception lectures you know you've got rods and cones and hair cells and all that kind of thing and i've got at least some idea of how smell and taste work it, basically i think something to do with your tongue being full of differently shaped holes that are designed to fit certain shaped molecules something like that but touch i don't actually really know how haptic receptors relay information about you know shape or texture or anything like that when you run your hand over a rough surface or press a button on your keyboard or, or rub a small diamante pig what information do you have a real one of these pigs ben sending back to your brain what do you have a real diamante pig because you've mentioned it a lot it's almost as if you maybe bought one no well, i don't know why you'd say something like that anyway so to answer this you know deep-seated nagging doubt i uh, i found a actually kind of cool study about haptic illusions um which also quite nicely explains a bit about how we actually perceive like physical geometry through touch so the basic idea of haptic perception is actually kind of similar to vision in that we seem to have two separate mechanisms for dealing with static stimuli and moving stimuli the two are different because they are pronounced differently okay <laughs> a, a static haptic stimulus would be something like holding a golf ball in your hand the ball isn't moving across your skin but you can still feel you know the bumps and hollows on it so your receptors must therefore be able to derive information just from like the relative pressure on different parts of your hand alternatively you could run your fingers across the surface of the golf ball in which case the same set of receptors in your finger will be producing like a constantly changing signal which basically represents like changing levels of force being exerted on your skin by the humps and bumps and such. So according to this paper by Vincent Hayward and the excessively hyphenated Gabriel Robel de la Torre, 
Uh, up until rev relatively recently, it was assumed that our ability to perceive the shape of an object relied solely upon static geometric cues. Basically, the idea was that we ignore any uh, irrelevant force cues resulting from like the motion of the object that we're touching. Now, the authors wanted to test and seemingly undermine this assertion. But in order to do so, they needed some kind of apparatus that would let them independently manipulate force cues from the surface, uh, force cues as in like motion cues and the actual surface geometry of an object, which it, I couldn't have worked out what they would have chosen. But anyway, they used a device called a manipulandum. A manipulandum which, also. A, mani a manipulandum, which is sadly not a bicycle that two people pedal using their hands, but in fact, is a kind of is a kind of robot arm. It's actually kind of like a reverse of the tickling machine, kind of, sort of. Basically, it allows the participant to remotely explore an object with real-time haptic feedback. Um, in the case of this study, it was basically just like a little um, a little pad uh, that they could press down on and then move around over like a surface but you get ones which are like extendable robot arms and all that kind of thing i'll put some pictures in the show notes that will hopefully it's kind of difficult to explain verbally um so in in, in this study uh weird that touch would be that way yeah odd who would have thought it anyway they in this study participants were pressing down with their index fingers on this plate on the manipulandum whilst rolling it up and down a surface and that surface was either flat or had a little hollow, a little hole in it, or a little bump, like a raised bevel. However, the key part was that the manipulandum itself could generate artificial force on the participant's finger, independent of the geometry of the surface. So the experimenters could essentially produce virtual bumps or virtual hollows, and or they could mask the existence of actual bumps and hollows by varying this force feedback mechanism on the manipulandum, like as a function of the actual surface geometry. They could kind of compensate for it. So uh, put simply, the subjects used the, the robot arm to rub these bumpy or holy surfaces. And sometimes they felt exactly what the surface was, but sometimes the robot basically lied to them and produced virtual bumps or virtual holes uh, in various sometimes they're in different locations so sometimes the virtual hole would be positioned directly over the top of an actual bump or sometimes a virtual bump would be like slightly offset so overlapped slightly with an actual hole all okay. sorts of different conditions and the results of the study I, I found actually pretty confusing to interpret but from what i can tell from it what happened was participants reported that virtual holes, i.e. those based on this kind of force feedback rather than actual geometry, these virtual holes felt deeper than actual holes. It was like a more intense haptic experience. When there was an actual hole that was overlapped with a virtual bump, participants almost always reported feeling a bump uh, and obviously vice versa for actual bumps and virtual holes. Um, this taken together these two findings suggest that contrary to the established wisdom the like motion based force information supersedes the static geometric information when it comes to detecting you know the shape of an object hmm. 
That being said, a small number of the subjects didn't actually behave in quite the same way. Uh, these guys tended to take a very long time to explore the surfaces and often reported a kind of averaging of the pattern. So if it was like a, a virtual hole over a, a, an actual bump, they would report it being flat. Um, and so it would appear that, as with pretty much all the other senses, the general like dominance in a population of one particular system doesn't necessarily mean that everyone experiences it the same way. You know, maybe these, I, I kind of think like maybe these part of these odd few participants were like the haptic equivalent of colorblind people. You okay. know, they were, they, you know, maybe they were, there was a bit more of a disconnect between them. They, they didn't have that same dominance of the, of the force feedback mechanism. Um, so yeah, that was, uh, I thought it was cool I, I didn't really have an idea of what a haptic illusion might be. And this is clearly one of them, although it takes quite a lot to set up. And yeah, I feel like I've learned a little bit more about how touch works as a, as a sense. Yeah, cool. In a boring, perception-y kind of way. Right, well, let's get out of the boring zone to the much more fun zone. Uh, yeah. and uh, this is a, a paper that is literally titled what a feeling um, <laughs> if I could have queued up the music I still wouldn't have done um, so <laughs> Festians et al 2013 have an interesting angle on the importance of touch this time in priming and indeed to add a little frisson in sexual priming so to get to why they're getting all touchy-feely, literally, as opposed to in emotion, which is obviously a metaphor I strongly object to, we have to look at sexual priming in general. If you show, or as they unhelpfully put it, visually expose a man to a sexually attractive member of the opposite sex, I mean, I assume this is oriented sex, actually, sidebar, uh, they, as usual, make sure that people are heterosexual most of the time, sometimes they forget to. I guess it might come up if, you know, people start giving you sexual cues that you find irrelevant, be like... I'm not going to be helpful to your study. Um, <laughs> like this it. is doing nothing for me. <laughs> exactly, like blonde women. Uh, so they become more impatient for monetary awards. Uh, they attach higher importance to material goods and they spend more on conspicuous consumer goods. It's why all of the screens in Times Square show a permanent loop of Christina Hendricks images. Uh, that may have been... A no, no, sorry, you're you're mistaking that with the buttons on our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I did actually, on writing that, obviously go and check the buttons, which were invented. What are uh, they these days? Uh, they are currently, based on a previous episode, sexual tension and unresolved sexual tension. <laughs> the uh, Wikipedia well, this, and this, TV tropes pages, respectively. This episode, it needs to be finger in the eye and... No! And manipulandum. Because I'm, not, I'm not putting finger in the eye. <laughs> okay, you don't have to. You do have to put manipulandum on there because, as you will see in the show notes, one particular image that comes up when you Google manipulandum is amazing okay. in a very weird way. Okay, well, I think that's safe for the blue button. Uh, manipulandum is also going to be the episode title. So yeah. <laughs> um, maybe I'll put the one image of Christina Hendricks in on a time Manipulandum? I barely know him. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, as I say, may have been a dream I had. That is the thing about dreams. They show the things you really desire. In my case, a trip to New York. Um, <laughs> see? Gentle comic subversion. Uh, women. Big apples. Oh, Ben. Ben. 
I think the apple is the wrong fruit. Like a white peach? I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> really? Just double down, why don't you? Okay, get on with it. I, I think that, that, that you mean triple eown. Anyway. Oh, if that joke is accurate, I'm going to be so ashamed of myself. Um... <laughs> Women do not show this effect when exposed to sexually attractive members of the opposite sex. They also don't show the effect of making cheap jokes about <laughs> popular sexual archetypes. Um, so studies in, of sexual priming and consumer decisions have started to exclude women. Um, but questions... Brilliant. <laughs> that's the answer. It's like the effect doesn't work, so let's just stop studying them. Um, questions at Al are equal opportunity evil marketers. They figured that sex must motivate women to buy some stuff somehow and they don't mean it and summers uh they reckon that the sensory specific choice of primes is the problem not that women have a lot more sense and they believe that tactile primes will work in affecting financial decisions i went for i guess i went for tactile rather than haptic here same thing why do we have two greek or possibly greco latin words don't know you know so what do we know about tactile uh, sexual cues in general and who puts that on their doctoral application form without getting a few weird glances not that they're sensitive to glances they're kind of more tactile uh, well previously on the show we've talked about how touch in general promotes compliance and it turns out that general tactile stimuli say a soft fabric in a charity advert increases interest and in donations this is related to the i'm not joking endowment effect that owning <laughs> something increases its value and touching something gives us a similar emotional reaction to owning things. Seems like the person goes around licking everything so no one else will want to eat it. Just like I assume that I own everything I touch in the emotional parts of my brain. Uh, and these emotional uh, reactions are kind of consistent with the sort of idea of the thing. So if you touch food, that will make you even hungrier. Um, so they hypothesize that touching men's underwear will triggle... Will triggle? <laughs> Easy. <laughs> what? Easy. Okay, it's fine. I'll slow down. Will trigger sexual feelings, which will lead to the similar financial recklessness and consumerism that seeing attractive women does for men. Naturally, I do love the synthesis of ideas sometimes. It's like sexual stimuli increased buying. Emotional investment comes from touch. Quick! I need a pile of briefs and boxers. The sexy kind. Stat! <laughs> uh, also... Uh, they call the underwear sexually laden stimuli. Now, I don't oh. know if they count oh. as laden if they're not being <laughs> worn. Uh, well, I mean, they were, they were probably unused, so... Yeah, no, these are unused and unworn. Uh, obviously, because of the patriarchy, this research method is adapted from a study on men which had them either touch bras or T-shirts and rate them and then make financial decisions. Now, I feel that rating boxer shorts and T-shirts of the same material is a slightly different task. Because surely in rating bras, should we rate like practical factors like support and the structural design and that sort of thing? Is that just me? Do I see it as yeah. a kind of engineering and cantilevering issue? <laughs> I think, yeah, I mean, there's there's something to be said from that perspective on it. You'd probably be... A, a great benefit to the um, what's the word brazier in industry yeah, upholstery I, 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 is that I, it upholstery <laughs> <laughs> I mean yeah let's not talk about curtains. is it haberdashery I, I can guess <laughs> I mean I mean in in a way it's haberdashery <laughs> let's not do that because we could be here all day uh, <laughs> so uh, in the first study they tested uh, the effect of touching underwear on impatience for monetary rewards 
So they asked the participants to rate the item of clothing that they'd been given on several factors, including touch, and then on how much they'd have to receive in a week's time to be equally happy as receiving 15 euros now. Uh, so obviously a delay needs compensation and the more impatient, the higher the second value will be. You know, if you tell me you'll give me a donut now uh, in order to be happy in a week's time, I'll need like a bag of sugar and a block of butter to be equally compensated. Uh, so they also asked, um, you know, for what would they want in two weeks and what would they want in a month's time to see the steepness of the curve? Not like that. And so the sex cue condition showed a significant increase in their impatience for the financial reward. And this pattern reflected uh, the pattern in males when they're shown visual cues. So the second study looked at the impact on loss aversion. In general, we'd rather not lose $10 than rather would gain $10, if that makes sense. It's valued more when it's in negative figures. They also wanted to see if the effects generalised from money to other things like food. And I certainly know that any time I've touched female underwear, I've had a sudden and overwhelming craving for goulash. So I spent a lot of time trying to pick what food stuff should go there as the most like unusual, weird and unsexual. Goulash. Yeah, I, I think uh, I think you m could have probably picked something else. Why? Sam, never mind. Okay. I, I don't want to know your reasoning until after the show. <laughs> I'll write that down to remember to ask you. So what would you have said for food stuff you crave after touching underwear, which is a non sequitur? Uh, I would have said, no, I wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> Does it turn out that all food can be it's, sexy? It's kind of an interesting introspective process. What is the least because, sexy food? Right, because I picked a spicy food, right, because... All spicy foods are dangerous in that in any context of that is, any that form is of touching, not yeah, sexual sure. touching, but any touching. Uh, maybe so. I think of things like goulashes and curries as distinctly unsexy foods. Hmm. Maybe no. no. <laughs> maybe a raw potato. A raw potato. <laughs> not a baked potato. How is a baked? No, 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 no. But a raw potato, maybe. Maybe, no, no. I think I worry about the extent what, why a baked potato is somehow sexualized compared to a raw potato. Ah, <laughs> uh, let's not go there. Um, let's. We, I think we already did, but we can back away from it rapidly whilst smiling. <laughs> exactly. You've got to keep eye contact. Actually, no. You're supposed to. I think you're supposed to. Like once you've broken away from someone who's like assaulting you, I think you're supposed to turn your back and run instead, because then you can run faster. Um, and just hope that you're not wearing your coat with the googly eyes. <laughs> yeah, well, there's a dress code at work. Um, so similarly, uh, these the women, they came in, they touched and rated the clothes, and then they were given hypothetical amounts of money and chocolate truffles. 25 euros and a kilogram of truffles. A kilo. Whoa. I would be so angry about that being purely hypothetical. It's making me hungry just thinking about that many truffles. Uh, again, they had to rate what they'd... Um, the amount that they'd be indifferent to in a dice game of winning uh, five euros or 200 grams of truffles in a 50-50 chance. So how much of loss would they accept as kind of equal to that? Because people wouldn't say five euros and 200 grams of truffles normally because they are loss averse. And it turns out that touching boxes made people significantly more willing to risk gold or truffles for potential gain, which can really screw up your empire. Um, <laughs> I, just a very subtle reference in there. 
Um, yeah. So uh, there was no significant effect of whether it was food or money and no interaction effect. Still, potentially, you'd end up with kilos and kilos of truffles if you were super risk averse and the situation was real. Like, what are you going to do with all those truffles? I mean, apart from eat them all in one go. Um, <laughs> I'm not being sexist because I want to do that too. Fill the boxer shorts with them and then confuse them. Uh, ben, I've just realised talking about sexual food is going to be back in the later part of this study. Uh, so now you can say at this point that seeing underwear might still trigger certain primes. I mean, maybe it turns out showing an attractive man doesn't work because female attraction is more subtle than male. But showing underwear leads to the female subjects projecting their idea of attraction into those clothes. You might also say that men touching underwear should be included for comparison. So they did. They rated the willingness to purchase on various neutral or rewarding products, including men, and a no-touching, no-touching condition. Um, the uh, the uh, latter um, condition involves putting the clothing behind a plexiglass barrier, which makes it seem like a museum exhi exhibit. And there probably is yeah. a museum of underwear. In fact, I googled it. There is the Musée de Slip in Brussels, a <laughs> museum dedicated to the underwear of Belgian celebrities, including Plastic Bertrand. Sa pants pour moi, indeed. That's right. Wow. Belgian French joke. Uh, yep. I'd like. <laughs> I'd like to suggest. Literally, could you name any other Belgian celebrities apart from Plastic Bertrand? Monsieur no. Waffle, I've been, broken, of I've been broken by the bugle because <laughs> exactly. my brain is just like an 800 foot high rendi rendering of the word waffle. <laughs> just yeah, filling well, my mental imagery right That's now. what their armed forces is. <laughs> it's worked so well for them all of those times. Anyway, avoid Second World War jokes. Um, so yeah, I'd like to suggest another confound bras are not directly comparable to boxer shorts if you know what i mean i mean i have a lot of underwear opinions um so they composed an anova of rewarding versus neutral product male versus female tactile versus visual versus non-sexual and this revealed a significant three-way interaction which as we know is funny every time <laughs> and so this broke down as for women their willingness to purchase rewarding goods went up when in the tactile sex priming condition. So, in the entrance to department stores, they need compulsory underwear touching for women, but less so in supermarkets. Uh, so they, well, yeah, because if it was in a department, uh, like a, a, a clothing store, then you could have like a kind of brushy, you know, like uh, car washes have the big <laughs> yes. spinning things, but instead of, <laughs> instead of wipes, you just have like, boxer shorts that's that you have to walk through while being gently brushed by them but if the equivalent for a supermarket would just be like steaks yep <laughs> yep exactly yep. um so actually uh it turns out men are just indiscriminate their willingness to purchase was significantly higher when they touched a bra in both the neutral and rewarding product categories uh so the visual cue for uh, men enhanced the willingness to purchase but it fell short of significance perhaps because the full-blown visual effect relies on actual pictures of attractive people rather than random underwear. So, women shouldn't sexistly be excluded from making bad decisions because of sex. It's just that they have to touch something to trigger it. So, how long before tactile advertisement becomes a huge deal? 
Well, it's worth noting that you don't necessarily have to touch, you just have to be able to touch. The plexiglass thing is just as close to you, but something that's touchable sets off all these reward responses. Uh, one Professor Rolls has found that reward potential of a stimulus is higher the less intermediating, intermediating layers there are, including the atmospheric media. He really has such an emotional, poetic way with language. Um, <laughs> they also believe that the reward circuitry is non-specific, hence why sex cues uh, increase the impact both on money and on food, which are different sorts of reward. And why there are so many movies built around looking at ice cream. I mean, different combinations of ice cream, seemingly unappealing flavours that somehow work. A lot of chocolate and vanilla stuff. Somewhere one flavour in the mix is overpowering. And anyway, I'm sure I could extend in, the metaphor. In fairness, there, there, are, there are, yeah, quite uh, a lot of also, it doesn't all hold up. You know, in real life, Raspberry Ripple is delicious rather than horrifying. Uh, so they put... Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, I've just ruined, I've just uh, ruined Raspberry Ripple for I everyone. like Raspberry Ripple. I do, too. But it just occurred to me, I was trying to think of more... Was it worth it? ...ice cream metaphors. <laughs> and, uh, so, uh, yeah. I took you myself, I have to say. Uh, they put the gender differences... Sorry, what did you say, Ben? I said I like cookie dough myself. Oh, I don't. I, I, I'm going to spend a lot of time trying to work out. Oh, I had. No, let's. Right. I'm pulling back. I'm pulling the chute. We're bailing out. Um, <laughs> they put the gender differences down to the idea of differences in mating strategies, which obviously always annoys me because it is very gender essentialist and evolutionary psychological. But that men use visual cues to judge reward reproductively and will want to show off reward in any way they can. Whereas women only invest in really worthwhile rewards because they always have to invest more than men, like in being pregnant. They note that men can be induced to salivate by being shown sports cars after seeing pictures of attractive women. Which makes me feel very weird because I'd like to think I'd never fall for that stereotypy. Stereotypy? Stereotypy. Microsoft <laughs> Word accepts it as a word, but my mouth sure does not. So firstly, I'm pretty sure I've never salivated, even when exposed to, not like that, very attractive women. I mean, I mean, I haven't salivated in response to a rewarding visual stimulus. Not, I haven't ever salivated. Otherwise, I'd have a pretty dry mouth. Um, secondly, I don't like sports cars. They are dangerous and impractical. But would the effects work for showing me like a Honda Insight or a Renault Aventine, which is the sort of cars that I like? Um, it's, it's a bit like Pavlov's misogynist pig experiment. <laughs> right. Is it a Diamante pig? <laughs> Diamante, Tim. I it, don't know why you would say something like that. This feels like such a mind game. Have you bought me an engagement present? Anyway, <laughs> that's literally all I'm thinking about when I'm thinking about a pig made of actual diamonds in this case. It's just like... Anyway, I'm sorry. Uh, this these... is going to be an awkward week. <laughs> <laughs> Look, if you talked about it on the podcast I, and it's anything that can be construed as jewellery, you know what I'm going to think, Ben. Yeah. It's like the guy who buys the like one dollar rings and puts them in all of the champagne at a restaurant on Valentine's Day, which was a popular meme going around this year. Um, <laughs> so these are the important questions that psychology needs to ask. Like, can we make men salivate rather than more investigation of the modalities in sex cues? A sex cue, by the way, is not to be confused with a sex cue, which is what happens at a British orgy. And we're out. Uh, do you want some more out. versions of that particular joke? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know whether I do, but the listeners might. What, well, what did, did you think a sex cue was? Well, it could be a snooker fetish or what were the other ones? Uh, uh, what, uh, a oh, yeah. Spot. 
<laughs> Scottish bovine fetish, yeah. Or a fetish for the tech expert out of James Bond. Oh, yeah, I'd Bond. forgotten about yeah. that. Perhaps because it was the most, like, not not me. Funny. Because <laughs> apparently I, I like, prefer to be bestial than homosexual. My goodness, I'm a homophobe. I liked the, uh, I liked the Scottish, the Scottish Q. The BQ. Yeah, I got distracted by, you know, being Hamish and Dougal. Um, yeah. Not that we succeeded at that. And I haven't had my tea, and that might be affecting my performance. Yeah, right me too. I'm really <laughs> hungry right now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, it's because I sexually cued you, basically. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, let's misattributing all my salivation. <laughs> yeah. Actually yeah. Coming from. This is why I emotionally eat. <laughs> too dark? Let's get to the conclusion section before anything worse happens. <laughs> yeah, so conclusions. Uh, you probably can't tickle yourself unless you have a robot to do it for you. But if you can, you might be schizophrenic. Yeah, uh, even if you swap bodies, it's not going to work. Oh, well, tickling yourself. Also, yeah, you no, can fool yourself. But yeah. you can give yourself a baseball arm. So that's good. Yeah, um, yeah, that's true. Even if you do have a baseball arm, though, you do need to be very careful when identifying bumps and holes, particularly if there is a, you are doing it using a lying robot. And uh, if you are a woman, avoid touching men's underwear unless you want to make risky financial decisions. Men, there's really nothing you can do. Everything sure, you're set just you going to make risky financial. OK, so I can, <laughs> as long as I can identify one sexually stimulating image in my immediate environment over the last, like, month that can justify the frankly obscene amount of money i've been spending on warhammer lately <laughs> well have you bought any like slanesh demons <laughs> no i haven't okay so good that doesn't work damn god damn it well, <laughs> back, back to google <laughs> scholar i guess i was going to say a sister of the battle but i think that might just be me anyway <laughs> yeah Oh, man, the number of holes and bumps I have dug for myself this episode. Oh, <laughs> uh, well. Anyway. If, if, if you want to contact the show <laughs> and sue us for ruining your experience of raspberry ripple ice cream, uh, then uh, maybe psychomediapodcast at gmail.com, because I certainly didn't check that this week, and so we could well have been served. Yeah, it's it's possible. You can also tweet... Uh, at Team Psychomedia, or you can badger Tim specifically at Tetrarch Angel. Uh, there is the Facebook page, facebook.com slash psychomedia. Do discuss stuff on there, please. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, you should all go to psychomedia.wordpress.com for the show notes for the podcast in a staggering variety of audio formats, several of which may be functional. And uh, <laughs> there are some, there should be some good things, particularly the aforementioned picture that comes up on google image search when you search for manipulandum which i i i think as far as i can tell okay someone has built a robotic mouse in a box that is being it's either having an enema into its brain and in the usual way or it's like being electrocuted but it's also very confused which is perhaps unsurprising and its tail is duct taped to the ground and then there is an on and off switch it's like that's horrifying that's that's just a mouse horror movie isn't it really it does look pretty it could be something out of saw if saw were for mice anyway you should you should check out the show notes because it's got that on there and it's also got another picture of a manipulandum and uh yeah some other things too
great brilliant so until next time uh where i'm sure we will not be talking about meta psychology <laughs> <laughs> goodbye bye for now you've been listening to the psychomedia podcast a welcome to the madness production for the internet this episode of psychomedia was brought to you by pokewell and snoots bespoke tickling supplies limited fed up of your inability to tickle yourself Jealous of your schizophrenic friends having all the fun. Now introducing an end to autototilic misery with Pokewell and Snoot's patented Tickle Me Timer. With a wide range of attachments to suit your personal tickling preference, the Tickle Me Timer allows you to get the tickling you deserve. And now with our new nuclear-powered chrono prolonger and laser-guided homing prong, you can take your tickling to the next level. With input delays of up to 12 years and state-of-the-art military homing technology, we can guarantee you the tickles you desire wherever and whenever you want them. Pokewell and Snoot, we're serious about tickling. Since 1869, patent pending, terms and conditions apply. Consult your doctor before using Tickle Me products. Not suitable for those with a history of heart disease. Avoid contact with bare skin and pets. If warning light turns red, proceed immediately to a secure location. Lock all doors and windows and contact the emergency services for external use only. So why is goulash a sexy food? <laughs> uh, spoonerize it. Lugash. Okay. And then Google those two words. <laughs> I don't think I'm ever going to do that. <laughs>